I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. My name's David Inman, and as the Incredible Inman, I used to write a syndicated newspaper column about movie and TV trivia. I've also written several books about those subjects, and I write material for Ben Mankiewicz, the host on the Turner Classic Movies cable channel. With this podcast, my plan is to look deeper into the history of movies and TV and bring you short episodes about significant people and events. I call this one a short history of ridiculous sponsor interference. Now we all know what sponsors are, of course, and we all understand the idea behind commercial television broadcasting. But before television, in the days when radio was our dominant mass communication medium, sponsors had much more power over the programming we heard. The first broadcast advertising began almost as soon as broadcasting began, the early 1920s. In those days, advertising time on the radio wasn't sold by the minute or by 30-second increments. It was sold by the half hour, or the hour. Commercial sponsors, represented by advertising agencies, would buy these blocks of radio time and fill them with shows they produced and created, again through the ad agencies. So sponsors were very high profile in commercial radio. When you listen to that medium in the 1930s and 40s, it wasn't unusual to hear things like this. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, and yours truly, Don Wilson. The Johnson Wax program with Fibber McGee and Bolly. Yes, Thursday night, and Thursday night means it's Maxwell House Coffee Time starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. Now, notice the order of the billing on each of those show openings. The sponsor is listed first, the performer second. The performers would also perform in commercials during the show, and in some cases become strongly identified with the products their shows sold. Jack Benny's a great example. Over a period of about 20 years on the radio, he had two long-term sponsors. The first was Jell-O through General Foods, and the second was Lucky Strike Cigarettes through the American Tobacco Company. A Benny's writers would work with the sponsor's ad agency to incorporate spots within the flow of the show. Here's a quick example. And uh, now, folks, um, tonight Don Wilson, that rising young author, has written a little play which he is about to announce. Take it, Don. Ladies and gentlemen, the scene is a little vine-covered cottage located in the suburb of a typical American city. The time is 7 p.m. and dinner is being served. So without further ado, we take you to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Average American. Oh, darling. Darling. Yes, Average. <laughs> it was so thoughtful of you to have Jell-O for dinner. No wonder it's the fastest-selling fastest selling gelatin dessert in America today. Yes, indeed. Oh, Av, there's something that I must tell you. It's been gnawing at my heart for weeks, and I can't keep the secret any longer. 
Gee, these sliced bananas add just the right touch to it. What were you saying, dear? My love for you has grown cold. Please understand. I'm not doing this to hurt you. But tonight I'm leaving you forever. Gee, this is good. I can understand now why Jell-O sales are breaking records all over the country. Where are you going, dear? I'm running away with Oliver G. Fairfield, my new love. I see. Here he is now. Hello, honey. My sweetheart. Hello, Oliver. Take that. You must make this dessert more often, dear. Because it is not only tempting and delicious, but economical as well. Now, Jack Benny was probably the best at integrating these sponsors into the, his commercials, but this practice continued into the 1960s, and if you go on YouTube today, you can see clips of uh, Rob and Laura Petrie doing dishes with Joy detergent, or the Beverly Hillbillies uh, eating Kellogg's cereals, and then there's this example. Gee, we ought to do something, Fred. Okay. How's about taking a nap? I got a better idea. Let's take a Winston break. That's it. Winston is the one filter cigarette that delivers flavor 20 times a pack. Given this control that the sponsor had over the show, there was always the chance that they might go a little bit too far. And that happened one night in the spring of 1959 on the CBS drama series Playhouse 90. That night, Playhouse 90 was presenting a drama called Judgment at Nuremberg about the trials in Germany after World War II involving people who ran the concentration camps. You're going to hear one of the actors in the show, Claude Rains, utter a line of dialogue, and you're going to hear an odd gap when he's talking, as if something was dubbed out, because it was. But how in the name of God... Can you ask me to understand the extermination of millions of men, women, and innocent children for the sake of a political expediency? Those words that were bleeped out were very simple. Gas ovens. Why were they bleeped out? And now a word from our alternate sponsor of Act One, your gas company. Wah, wah, wah. We don't know who was responsible for the censorship of judgment at Nuremberg. Some people say it was uh, a representative of the ad agency, and some people say it was an executive at CBS. But whoever was responsible, it was one of those classic examples where getting rid of something actually drew more attention to it than leaving it in in the first place. Okay, next up on our list of sponsors behaving badly is arguably one of the worst sponsors of all. Here we go. Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. Okay, now imagine you're the producer. Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. The producer of a successful radio show. Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. And the sponsor of your show is Lucky Strike, and Lucky Strike feels like they can stick their nose in your program anytime they want. Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. 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 The man responsible for that commercial interruption was George Washington Hill. He was the head of the American Tobacco Company, and he was a big believer in repetitive advertising, in uh, drilling messages into the minds of consumers. And when World War II broke out, Hill got a great idea. At that point, Lucky Strike came in a green package with the red uh, target in the center. Hill decided to start a campaign telling people that Lucky Strike Green 
was going to become white. Lucky Strike Green was going to give all of its green ink to the armed forces to help it manufacture camouflage equipment. As far as we know, this was basically a con game. But it also sounded patriotic, and it was a new way to try and sell Lucky Strikes. So Hill started ordering the insertion of this phrase into one of the programs Lucky Strike sponsored called Information Please. Information Please was a sophisticated panel show, and it had a certain flow to it, and the phrases inserted into the show interrupted the flow. Here you're going to hear the host of Information Please, Clifton Fadiman, get just a little bit irritated with the constant interruptions. Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. Yes, smokers. Lucky Strike gone to war. I don't know what these boys are talking about, but it seems to me that Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. (laughs) Uh... The producer of Information Please and the man who created the show was named Dan Golenpaul, and he understood that it was a very special show that uh, uh, didn't need to be interrupted repeatedly by uh, advertising phrases for any product, much less Lucky Strike. Golan Paul protested to George Washington Hill about the frequency of the interruptions, and George Washington Hill took the position that since Lucky Strike was sponsoring information, please, they could basically do anything they wanted with the show. Well, Golan Paul was not one to take that lying down, and he took George Washington Hill to court in an effort to get the spots uh, stopped. Well, the judge ruled in George Washington Hill's favor and said that uh, although the judge admitted that he wasn't crazy about the interruptions either, Hill had paid for them, and as part of the contract, they had to stay in. On the other hand, George Washington Hill knew a PR disaster in the making when he saw one, and he didn't want there to be a backlash against Lucky Strike cigarettes because, God forbid, people stop buying them. So Hill voluntarily stopped the interruptions of information, please, and worked out a deal with Dan Golan Paul where Lucky Strike would withdraw as the sponsor of the show. But for the last two weeks of Lucky Strike sponsorship, instead of interjecting Lucky Strike Green has gone to war into the show, Hill created a new catchphrase that was interjected. The best tunes of all moved to Carnegie Hall. Yes, the best tunes of all moved to Carnegie Hall. The phrase referred to a replacement show called Your All-Time Hit Parade, which would originate from Carnegie Hall. So this meant that for the last two weeks of American Tobacco sponsorship on Information Please, the panelists would have to withstand these repetitive advertising interjections for a show that was actually going to replace them. Now, not all conflicts between sponsors and producers are that serious. Some of them are downright silly, including uh, this clip you're going to hear from a 1955 TV special with Judy Garland and David Wayne. Oh, New York. I haven't been to New York for such a long time. I'll be so glad to see it again. Well, honey, now just stick around. I'm going to show you something. I'm in the dark. No, you're not, darling. You're in silhouette. Look, look behind you. Oh, I recognize that. That's the skyline of New York City. Now, the people who were watching this TV special 
did indeed see the skyline of New York City, but what they were seeing was a backdrop of it that was missing one of its most notable landmarks, the Chrysler Building. And the reason? Because the show was sponsored by Ford. Philip Morris, America's most enjoyable cigarette, presents the Lucille Ball Desi Arnaz Show, I Love Lucy. One of the sponsors of I Love Lucy was Philip Morris Cigarettes, and the show they chose to advertise on was immensely popular. During its first season, when there were only 15 million TV sets in the whole country, 11 million of those sets, on average, were tuned to I Love Lucy. The famous 1953 episode, where Lucy Ricardo gives birth to little Ricky, drew an amazing 92% of the audience. But still, the makers of Philip Morris weren't happy. It was sponsoring the nation's most popular TV show, but Philip Morris wasn't the nation's most popular cigarette. The executives couldn't find out where the disconnect was, and finally the order came down from on high. Lucy and Ricky Ricardo needed to smoke more. So did Fred and Ethel Mertz. Maybe even Little Ricky. But that didn't work either, and after a few seasons, the cigarette company gave up sponsorship. Revlon, the greatest name in cosmetics, presents The One, Two, Four, Eight, Sixteen, Thirty-Two, Sixty-Four. Yes, the $64,000 question. The only show to rival I Love Lucy in popularity during the 1950s was the $64,000 question. At the end of the 1955-56 TV season, it beat out I Love Lucy as the country's most popular show. And as you heard in the opening, the $64,000 question was sponsored by Revlon, which at that time was run by a gentleman named Charles Revson. Revlon got into TV as the sponsor of a dramatic anthology series called Danger. But as far as Revson was concerned, the show was too much about Danger and not enough about Revlon. Besides that, Revson didn't like black and white TV. He didn't think it was an appropriate way to sell cosmetics. You needed color to show the shades of lipstick and nail polish Revlon sold. What did help convince Revson to advertise on TV was that Revlon's biggest competitor, Hazel Bishop Cosmetics, also sponsored a TV show. This is your life. Television's new kind of program is brought to you every week at the same time by Hazel Bishop No Smear Lipstick, America's largest selling lipstick. Revson didn't care about the show itself, but he loved the fact that the name of Hazel Bishop graced the show's set and stayed on display throughout the program. You turned on the TV to watch This Is Your Life, but you were subconsciously soaking up vibes for Hazel Bishop No Smear Lipstick. Revson canceled Danger when his ad agency came to him with the $64,000 question. It was actually based on an old radio quiz show where the top prize was only $64. But everything about the $64,000 question was larger than life. They even gave away new Cadillacs as consolation prizes. Best of all, as far as Revson was concerned, was that the centerpiece of the show was an isolation booth that contestants would have to enter to answer their big money questions. 
There was really no reason for the booth other than to heighten the suspense. Oh, and to prominently display a big Revlon logo on top. For good measure, the window from which the contestant would look out was flanked on each side by giant lipsticks looking like big red-tipped bullets. To further build suspense, contestants on the $64,000 question were kept on for several weeks as they either made their way to $64,000 or took the money they'd won so far. Each week there was drama. Would they stay and try for more? Last week, our visiting champion from Italy, Giovanna Ferrara, whose category is American history, answered the $1,000 question. Tonight, she's back to tell us whether she'll take her $1,000 or leave it and try for $2,000 on her march to the $64,000 question. And our brush salesman from the Bronx, Wilton J. Springer, whose category is drama, answered his $2,000 question. Tonight, he's back to tell us if he'll take his two or leave it and try for $4,000. On his march to the $64,000 question. The ad agency producing the $64,000 question was intent on only one thing, pleasing the client. And without coming right out and saying it, Charles Revson let it be known which contestants he liked and didn't like, and steps were taken to fulfill Revson's wishes. A similar kind of control was taking place on another popular game show, 21 on NBC. Again, the sponsor was driving the bus and throwing everyone else underneath it by ordering fixes without overtly ordering fixes. So right now, let's meet our first two players as Geritol, America's number one tonic, presents 21. From New York City, Mr. Charles Van Doren, and returning with $69,500 from Forest Hills, New York, Mr. Herbert Stemple. The most popular contestant on 21 was Charles Van Doren, a handsome, mild-mannered college professor who won over $129,000, over a million in today's dollars. He appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and after his run on 21 was over, he joined the Today Show as a cultural commentator. But in 1959, in testimony before Congress, Van Dorn admitted he was either given answers before each show or the questions were tailored to his knowledge. Everything was choreographed, he said, even details on how contestants should clear their throats or act nervous on the air. The quiz show scandals were the ultimate example of sponsor control, and lives were destroyed as a result of the deception. We don't have actual film of Van Dorn's testimony in Washington, But in 1994, Robert Redford chronicled the incident in a movie he directed called Quiz Show, with Ray Fiennes as Van Doren. Here from the movie are Van Doren's actual words. I would give almost anything I have to reverse the course of my life in the last year. The past doesn't change for anyone. But at least I can learn from the past. I've learned a lot about life. I've learned a lot about myself and about the responsibilities any man has to his fellow men. I've learned a lot about good and evil. They're not always what they appear to be. I was involved, deeply involved in a deception. 
I have deceived my friends. And I had millions of them. As a result of the quiz show scandals, the broadcast sponsorship model began to change. Thanks to some gentle prodding from Congress, the FCC, and the TV networks. Instead of sponsoring and producing just one program, advertisers began spreading their money around and buying spot commercials on different programs. This allowed advertisers to reach a more diverse audience, which made them happy, and it diluted their power to influence content, which made the TV networks happy. For example, in 1962, the CBS series The Defenders took a sympathetic look at a physician who chose to perform abortions. This was a controversial topic, to say the least, and the show's regular sponsors dropped out. But CBS found a replacement sponsor, and the episode aired as scheduled. Nowadays, of course, we watch television on all kinds of devices, from tablets to phones to watches, maybe even a TV once in a while. And it's easier than ever to skip commercials altogether. But advertisers, those crafty devils, have fought back by injecting their wares into the shows we watch. Toyota works with the producers of Modern Family, and the characters on that show drive Priuses and Toyota minivans. Microsoft works with the producers of The Mindy Project, and all the characters on the show use Surface tablets. And 30 Rock, a show about a TV show, had its own spin on product placement. I'm sorry, you're saying you want us to use the show to sell stuff? Look, I I know how this sounds. No, come on, Jack, we're not doing that. We're not compromising the integrity of the show to sell... Wow, this is diet Snapple? I know, it tastes just like regular Snapple, doesn't it? You should try Plumagranate. It's amazing. I only date guys who drink Snapple. Look, we all love Snapple. Uh, Lord knows I do, but focus here. The funny thing is, the growth of technology like, oh, I don't know, podcasts has actually brought us full circle to the way commercials were delivered in the days of early radio. Simple verbal testimonies from the hosts themselves. So when I tell you that Home Chef has helped make my marriage stronger by motivating my wife and I to work together as a couple in preparing a meal made from the freshest, most delicious ingredients, you know I mean every word. Actually, I do. Home Chef, drop me a line at incredibleimmanentyahoo.com. I think we can do some business. The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is written, edited, produced, and narrated by me, David Inman. I also clean up afterwards. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to us on iTunes and rating us. Also, please visit the Incredible Inman Facebook page. And you can hear other podcast episodes at IncredibleInman.com. See you later.